Our office's job is to manage not only the trout streams, but the waters, fisheries waters in our area. Anything from stocking trout in our streams. We have rainbows, um, brown trout, and brook trout now that we are stocking. That was Melissa Wagner, Lanesboro's Area Fisheries Supervisor. Today, we talked about her work with DNR Fisheries in the Driftless region of Minnesota. We will cover how project planning works and what information is collected for fish stocking. We will also talk about how the DNR works with Trout Unlimited. I'm Linnea Turner, and you're listening to Emerging, the official podcast of Trout Unlimited, Costa's Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple. I'm glad we got connected. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. Could you just start us off and give a little introduction where you're from and how you got into fisheries? Yeah, my name is Melissa Wagner. I'm originally from Oakdale, Minnesota, um, but I currently live now down in southeast in Lanesboro, Minnesota, and got into fisheries. Um, I went to, I had my undergrad at University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. Um, where I was actually recruited to play basketball, and I also played, ended up playing softball there, but went with the idea of getting into biology, wasn't really sure what, so I ended up majoring in biology and minoring in chemistry, and it really wasn't until my senior year that I took an aquatics ecology class that it really just clicked, that everything in the class, I was just kind of yearning to learn more and realized that that's kind of what I wanted to get into was something related to an aquatics type job or career and met a professor that luckily was able to connect me with his old PhD professor at the university or sorry, North Dakota State University. And I ended up doing my master's project there on shallow lakes. And so quickly kind of got into, you know, it was more ecology driven but I worked with a lot of DNR folks and kind of realized that's what I wanted to get into was with the DNR and specifically fisheries, just because it's something I've been passionate about since I was little. That's awesome. Have you been fishing since you've been little? Yes, I grew up fishing at my family cabin. My mom and her three sisters actually grew up there. It's a cabin my grandparents built. And that's awesome. So, yeah, I grew up on the dock there as much as I could and had family members that would also take me out. And so I wanted everything to do with in and around the water, from fishing to water skiing to swimming. So it's definitely a pastime of mine. Sure. What's your favorite type of fish to catch? I would probably say crappies or walleye. So I grew up, again, cities area and fishing more lakes up in the northern part of the state mostly for walleye back then but recently I really enjoyed um, learning more about how to crappie fish and I think they're the best eating as well so sure yeah that's always a plus (laughs) yeah (laughs) do you fly fish at all I have I wouldn't say I'm a avid fly fisher woman it's something I would definitely like to try to get more back into right now I have two small boys at home that really don't allow me to do too much fishing um, right now. But with the valuable resources we have down here, you know, I realize that I should just be trying to get out there more and fish the streams that I'm helping manage. And I guess if I were to go out right now, I'd probably grab my 
spinning rod and do more of that type of fishing because it's just what I'm more comfortable with and sure. pretty good at casting that. But And then you mentioned you're in the Driftless region, and I've talked about this a little bit in my, a few of my other episodes. Could you just kind of explain what the Driftless region is? Okay, yeah. So the, the Driftless area, it involves four states. It's kind of an area that encompasses southeast Minnesota. Um, it'd be southwest Wisconsin, and then northeast Iowa, and then a little bit of northwest Illinois. So this area during the last ice age was not covered by ice. So it therefore lacks, you know, when the glaciers receded, it lacks those characteristics of those deposits, which they call drift. So that'd be the clay, the sand, silt, gravel, and cobble that gets deposited as those glaciers um, retreated, which, you know, also scoured the landscape and made the lakes and potholes that cover most of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So we know that there were previous glaciers that were in the area as it did carve through the bedrock and create a riverbeds. Um, but again, the, the Driftless area escaped most of those scouring and depositional events in the last ice age. So what we have left in our area, you know, we have the steep bluffs, the forested areas on top of the bluffs, and then the river valleys below with, you know, streams and a bunch of tributaries, and then all flowing in our area to the Mississippi. And then we also have what we call a karst um, geology. So we have the sinkholes and the caves and springs, and then ultimately those are what create our cold water trout streams. Okay. And which is why we have a lot of trout. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. What's your favorite part about living in the Driftless region? I would say the topography. I, I go other places and I'm like, where are the hills? Where are the bluffs? Sure, it's yeah. just makes for a beautiful landscape. We don't have straight roads that run true north, south, east, west. You know, you're winding in and around all these river valleys. And I would say that's probably, probably my favorite, just the the sights you see every day and the, you know, even the different roads, it's like, I've never been down this road and getting to see just everything when you're driving and it seems so tight and narrow because you're just in this little river valley. But um, in the grand scheme of things, it's how that all connects. You know, if you're a drop of water where you'd end up, it's just kind of neat. Right. Yeah. No, that's super cool. I'm excited to explore that area more. I haven't been down there that much. Yeah. I actually had never been down here. Um, well, that I remember. I'm sure we drove through <laughs> and we were going maybe somewhere for camping when I was little. But um, when I initially got the phone call about a position available in Lanesboro, I had to Google where it even was. Oh, yeah. Um, and even, everybody I talked to was like, oh, that's such a great area. Oh, we used to go bike down there. We go kayaking down there. And so I heard nothing but positive things and, and took the job even without even seeing it. But it was just something, you know, when you're Growing up in the cities and everybody, yourself and your friends have family cabins that you got to go to. It's just right. kind of what you did on the weekends. So how long have you been with the DNR? Yeah, I started in September 2007. So that's 15 years. And originally started as a, you know, entry-level fishery specialist. And I did that for about six years and then got an opportunity for an advancement into a position where I was working on our stream habitat projects as basically the DNR liaison. It was when the Outdoor Heritage Fund had kind of started up and there was a lot of groups in our area that were very successful, Trout Unlimited being the main one, in getting funds for stream habitat projects. And they quickly realized we kind of need a dedicated person to help. Mm -hmm. 
with these projects. The workload would typically fall on the area supervisor, which is what I am now, but it wasn't just realistic to have the level of involvement we would need on these projects and input. So they created that position. I was I was in that again for another six years and then uh, recently got promoted to the Lanesboro area supervisor. So that's, that's where cool. I am now, but I really enjoyed that last position. I learned a lot about our area and about working on those projects with the different groups that I worked with. What did you do in your last position and then what are you doing now? Yeah, so my last position, um, again, working with groups that were getting funding to do projects on our streams. So what I mean by a stream habitat project, it's they would pick degraded reaches of streams that lacked in-stream cover for trout, um, in-stream habitat, and maybe also had issues with, um, a lot of them have issues with like bank erosion. For example, Trout Unlimited, again, has been very successful in getting funding in our area. So they would get funding for a certain reach of a stream, and we would then work together to design a stream habitat project. They would hire a design engineer, an engineer firm, as well as a contractor that actually did the construction. But a lot of planning and working with other groups, such as the landowners, the counties, to get those projects on the ground. So it was really neat. I I liked that more of that project management-based mm-hmm. job where you'd see something from start to finish. You saw this rather degraded stream, and then when you're done with the project, seeing you know what it became and how much of an improvement it was, it was pretty rewarding. And we were doing, on average, three to four different projects a year. So they were kind of maybe at different phases of the project. Yeah, that's cool. What streams have you worked on? Oh, gosh. I think last I counted, I had about 50 different projects that I had been involved with. Oh, wow. You know, if you're familiar with anybody that's listening, is familiar with the area. Some of them, maybe the popular ones have been Trout Run Creek, Rush Creek, Mill, Garvin Brook, We've done a couple projects on South Branch of the Root River, recent really long one on West Indian Creek, and, you know, South Branch Whitewater is kind of a popular one to fish because it's closer to the cities, which you get quite a few anglers that come down from the cities. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been quite a few. So now, you know, being a area supervisor, our office's job is to manage not only the trout streams, but the waters, fisheries waters in our area. Anything from stocking trout in our streams. We have rainbows, um, brown trout, and brook trout now that we are stocking. Oh, really? Cool. You know, most of our time is spent doing population assessments, so we want to know what the current status of our trout streams are. There's some that we do every year. We have what we call a long-term monitoring program, so there's certain streams that we sample every year, which helps us get an idea of you know, variations from year to year, whether there's an environmental effects on some of these populations. But then our goal is for all the streams we have, which is I think over 150 designated streams, trout streams down here. Our goal is to get to each one of those every 10 to 15 years. We do have a pretty heavy workload when it comes to that. Some other things that our office is involved with, you know, it's different. We, we don't have lakes, so you can't just drop a boat in on a boat ramp and off you go if right, you're the right. public. And so we have our trout streams are mostly flowing through private land. 
you know, we do have some larger areas like Whitewater WMA, and we have a lot of state forest land as well. But if someone were to want to fish these, you know, needing that public access, we have for a long time been purchasing uh, what we call fishing easements. They're also termed conservation easements. And what that is, is we're we're purchasing access from the landowner and it's perpetual, so it's forever. So once we purchase fishing access on that reach, it'll be there forever. And it also allows not only fishing access, but it allows us the access for management activities, such as those stream habitat projects I was talking about. So most all of those were conducted on reaches where we had a fishing easement. Some of them were done on state land. So those are, those are very critical for our office to be able to justify some of the management we do. If we're planning to stock a stream, you know, it'd be harder to justify stocking a stream where nobody has access, the public doesn't have access to fish right, versus yeah. one where we have miles and miles of easements, you know, especially when you're stocking things such as the rainbow trout, which we stock as catchable size, the idea that it's more of a put and take fishery. Okay. What kind of um, information do you guys gather to know how much needs to be stocked? So we do have, you know, some historic data. We we do what we call natural reproduction checks on a handful of streams. And then we have some streams. So those would be our controls that we do every year. And then we have another few that we decide to evaluate each year. And basically we'll go in and check for those next year's year class of trout before we would do any stocking. Okay. So we kind of get an idea of like, okay, are they doing good on their own? Brown trout and brook trout spawn in the fall and then come late winter, early spring, they're hatched and they're really small. And so we're going in there like April, May and checking for those smaller little, we call them young of year. So it was last year's year class. And we do that prior to doing any of our um, stocking. So those are for the brown trout. Okay. We also have a Quite a few creel surveys that we've done as far as the rainbows and what how much harvest is occurring with those. But I know they're very popular uh, for people to, to fish for those and to catch. They haven't been successful that we know in reproducing. They're spring spawners. And mo- most of us think that our springs are just too variable with spring runoff and melt and oh, sure. spring floods we get for them to to be successful so we not that we know of that they've reproduced but again those are more put in as catchable size so you know there's a a lot of different tools we would use to kind of define where we should be stocking those population assessments we do are critical for knowing you know what the status of our population is so we basically take a known length of the stream and we do what we call electrofishing through that reach and we start on the downstream end and we walk upstream and we electrofish and we collect the fish as we go and we start at a riffle which is a natural barrier and then we end at a riffle and so with that known length and we do what we call two pass depletion so we we do two passes we'll collect all the fish on the first pass cage them in live boxes that we can place right in the stream and then we go back and we do a second pass and that allows us to basically calculate the abundance based on those two values and we can compare across years for a certain stream or we can compare across streams to see where our populations are at and we can make management you know decisions based on those values okay yeah that's cool um i had an opportunity to do electro fishing with one of my internships with trout unlimited and it's a really fun experience it's kind of wild how the fish just like you wouldn't even see them until you electro fish you know yeah it's like a magnet yeah exactly it is interesting you know 
for some of our streams where we don't have any easements, we still want to learn what the populations are in those streams. So another unique thing for our area down here is that, you know, again, these streams are flowing through private property. So we're often having to just call, send letters, or just stop by people's houses to ask permission to get on their property to mm. electrofish the, a stream station, you know, on their property. And a lot of them like, oh, there's nothing in there. You know, we don't ever see any fish in there and kind of have to sell them on. Oh, we still like to go check it out. You know, the equipment we have is might find different. And a lot of times they're wowed by how many trout are in their stream oh, yeah. that they didn't they didn't realize, um, you know, if they're just going tromping up and looking over the bank, looking for fish, you know, majority of their predators are either aerial or, you know, coming from the bank. So they're very leery of anything coming overhead. So mm-hmm. they'll just tuck right under and you won't see them. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun if you haven't ever seen electrofishing, mm-hmm. even on lakes, it's, it's pretty wild too. Oh, getting yeah, on I can boat. Imagine. So is a lot of the work you do on streams or do you do lake work still? Um, most, we don't have any true lakes. We do have some, what you could call reservoirs. So where they've either dammed up a tributary or dug a, you know, there's maybe private ponds scattered throughout. Um, so we have what we call some lake work. Um, it's pretty minimal. But mostly trout streams, we have been doing some boat electrofishing on the Root River, which is one of the main watersheds in our area that all the trout streams flow into. Okay. And that's been really interesting. It's been done in the past, but we just kind of started recently um, doing some more electrofishing work on there. And the, the diversity of species we're getting is pretty cool. You know, when one outing will shock a 18-inch brown trout and then a a crappie and a bunch of white suckers and get some nice walleyes randomly. You'll get a northern and shovel nose sturgeon. Oh, really? That's super cool. Yeah, it's quite the diversity in that, what you'd call more warmer water. Yeah, that's good to hear. But you have all these cold water inputs, so you're going by these spots where the trout streams are dumping in, and that's you'll see a bunch of trout piled up, you know, below those confluences there. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's been interesting. That's kind of pretty close to as much as we get to some lake work. But again, we do have some reservoirs where we're doing some netting and, and stuff, but it's not as not as much with all the other area offices that have quite a few more lakes because we're in the Driffles. Sure. Yeah, I guess I didn't really realize that there really weren't lakes down in more southern Minnesota. I just assumed yeah. they were everywhere. Southeast. <laughs> yeah, so you get out west, you know, they have a lot of lakes. But it's really just our southeast corner. Our area that we manage, it's really only four, it touches on a fifth county. So not too big of an area that we manage. But Okay. And then with your stream habitat projects, um, what goes into like the designing of how the project is managed? Yeah, so we work as a group to basically identify areas that need a project. And then, um, for example, if Trout Unlimited, we would we would give them a list of potential places that we'd like them to do a project. And if they're successful in getting funding, then that kind of starts the process. Early on, really, it's like, let's get to the site and see what, what we need to do here. So you, do you do an initial visit? and get an idea of what type of project you're going to have to do, whether you're going to have to do early severe bank shaping and then the different thoughts of, you know, what basically is lacking in the stream for the trout. You know, there's different components that they need to survive. So they need spawning riffles. They need deep pools for overwintering 
and they need habitat, overhead cover, um, different types of habitat that allow for different invertebrates to survive. So really just kind of looking like, what do we have? What are we starting with? And what is lacking? What are, what are our goals here to input into this project? And, you know, now they're bringing in design engineers that are hired to then do, you know, the design and engineering work but with inputs from all of us. So we would go on design walks. We do a a 30% design walk, a 60%, 90%, and then kind of our final walk. So along the way, you have their latest version of the plan, you know, on paper and Mm -hmm. each walk we're tweaking things like, oh, we should move this further upstream or why did we think we should put something here? That doesn't make sense. And um, so a lot of collaborating, again, bringing in landowners is major because most of them were working within that easement area, but a lot of times we want to work beyond the easement. And, and what I mean by that, most of our easements are 66 feet wide from center line out. Mm-hmm. So if we have easement on both sides, it'd be from the center line, you could go 66 feet to the left and 66 feet to the right. And the reason for that is a rod, so it goes back to the old survey days. But on our bigger rivers, we'll get what we, we call a double wide, so it'll be 132 feet wide. But once you have, if you have a 20 foot wide channel, you know, that really only leaves 50, 55 feet of bank to work with. And a lot of the dirt work that we want to do, if you have a 10 foot high bank, you want to shave down to two feet, you know, you're going to work a little bit beyond that easement. So working with the landowners is critical, making sure they don't have any issues or, you know, some of them like, oh, this is a tree I planted years ago. I don't want it to go. So, you know, Obviously, being conscious about the people that own the property. But right, yeah. So from there, once you get the design, then it's kind of going through the permitting process. So all these require um, various levels of permits and, and checks with the different groups, the DNR Waters folks and then the Army Corps engineer. Um, you know, they're also checked for sensitive species so we're making sure we're not going in there and disrupting you know a certain plant species that we don't want to so they get they kind of get looked at from quite a few different groups and agencies and then approved yeah hopefully approved and then you know once approved then they then they hire the contractor and the the funds start to do on the construction side of things and hopefully you don't get a major flood during the project but that happens actually very often. Oh, really? Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> and in a way, it's it's okay because, you know, we've had it where you've built like the top couple thousand feet of stream and then you get a, a flood that overtops the banks that you just did. And then when it recedes, everything looks good. So it's kind of like, oh, we kind of know what we're doing here. Like <laughs> this is a ground truth thing that we you know, designed everything properly, but they do require some healing time. You know, we get, people are excited when we do these projects. Everybody wants to fish them. They'll be fishing them while we're out there working on them, but really they need two, three years to really, you know, heal from the amount of dirt and bank disruption that we've caused and trying to get vegetation reestablished as well as, you know, a lot of our goals in stream are to, you know, improve the, not only the habitat, but also, you know, depth and ultimately a stream that can transport any of that fine, silty sediment that either comes from uplands or, you know, the next upstream reach of stream that might still have bank erosion issues. And so we're often narrowing our channels to try to help the stream, what we call transport the sediment on its own. So it it continues to 
flush those finer sediments, you know, during some of our more mild or medium sized rain events. Okay. So there is some like healing process, you know, you get, again, people are really excited to get out and it's easy to be a critic early on of some of these projects, but the river still has to kind of decide exactly where it wants to be. You know, we're sure. kind of somewhat putting it where we think it should be. And then there's always some minor adjustments that occur mm-hmm. during those higher flood events. Interesting. Now that you've been doing like the designing a little bit more, would you say that there's been like something that you struggled with learning kind of when you started doing the designing kind of like a curve? Oh, there's you learned something on every project. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was anything from, you know, don't forget to include the landowner earlier than later. You know, some of them you'd like, oh, we haven't talked to this person in a while. And then you realize they don't want you to do a certain thing to, you know, just the techniques we're using. You obviously learned a lot, a lot um, getting out onto the projects during construction. You know, you can draw up something that you want to build, but then having an understanding of like, how will this get built? Mm-hmm. So if the river's up against a bluff and you want to do put a you know a structure in there or something well how is the excavator going to get there if it's up against the bluff you know just different things that you you would learn just from the different experience early on I wouldn't have thought about that and now you kind of knowing the different stages and how these actually get built can provide better input earlier on what's actually feasible sure there's a lot of a lot of constraints in our area. Ideally, you know, there'd be no roads, no buildings, no bridges, no culverts, no nothing, and you could meander the channel back through the the river valley. But we obviously have a lot of those constraints that mm-hmm. we get to work in and around. I would say one of the most challenging projects I did was on the south branch of the root, and it flows right through the town of Preston. And we went under, well, we kind of started and stopped at a bridge, but there were three bridges total. Um, for most of the project, there was a paved bike trail on both sides, mm-hmm. pretty close to the river. And then obviously throughout, you know, people's houses and county infrastructure or city infrastructure. Um, so it was a challenge, you know, you have to kind of change your techniques for the different types of projects where there's other ones where maybe you do, it's going through state land and you can go wherever you want and have a little more free space or areas if you want to do re-meander the channel or just kind of work outside of that, those constrictions, I guess. Mm, yeah, okay. Interesting. And then So what- every project is different. It's just, you'll never know. And you won't know what the thing is going to be that you're going to learn or the challenge that you're going to have, but... Sure. There's always something. Sure, yeah, no, I can imagine. <laughs> what groups of Trout Unlimited do you work with? Um, so mostly Minnesota Trout Unlimited, um, but then they also have, um, I was working with, I would say, three of the chapters. Um, there's the Twin Cities chapter, Hiawatha, and then Windcrest um, chapters. So, which is cool to get some of those, you know, the, the local chapters involved and kind of take ownership in a project, not only from helping with design ideas or, you know, just learning like what they've caught there in the past or how they've fished it to, they've also been very helpful and active in helping with, you know, maintenance and some vegetation stuff afterwards. So we have a, you know, once you do these projects and you plant your grasses and forbs down on them and we, we do have maintenance agreements where they, the contractor is required to go back and do some mowing and we're trying to line up 
you know, then doing some burning down the road. But you can't just really do these projects and then just walk away right. um, without trying to go back and help help them along. So some of the ones that have gotten away from us, some of the older projects, you know, where you'd get a bunch of unwanted species to pop up. Some of the local chapters have taken on volunteer days where they're going and cut buckthorn or honeysuckle or help do some of those treatments. There's also there, uh, one of the chapters has a little push behind mowing kind of brush hog thing that they'll walk behind and, and cut paths for fishermen to, to get through when the weeds are over your head in July. Oh, sure. They yeah. still want to be able to fish those areas. So, so mostly MNTU, they've been, they've been very active again in getting um, that outdoor heritage funds that became available in 2009. We have another group over in Wisconsin called TU DARE, which is TU Driftless Area Restoration Effort. And we've also partnered with them on some projects. More of their efforts, I think, are in the Wisconsin area, just because, again, they have Minnesota TU that has the access to those Lassard funds. Um, but they've also brought in a kind of avenue to work with some of the local government units, so the SWCD offices, so the water conservation offices, and um, the NRCS folks to, um, there's just kind of a different pot of money that's available if you get a landowner to sign up for some of these conservation practices. So we can kind of stretch our Lassard dollars a little further if we do get another source of funding. So okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And then what do you do in the wintertime? Because I mean, I mean you, you still get snow down there a decent amount, yeah? We do get snow, yep. Although it's pretty, it's very sunny down here right now, so it's hopefully melting. <laughs> um, yeah, so in my previous position, the wintertime is when we did most of our design finalizing we tried to do the walks a little earlier more in the fall but then uh, winter time is you know when we're working through getting our permits so that you can start building the next year um, in my current position this is when we do like most of our report writing so any of our you know population estimates that we go out and do or our survey work we then write up port to summarize our findings and can compare to previous years and we update what we call our management plans. So every one of our streams has a management plan. And in that has guidance and information as to how we are managing that stream. So there would be stocking information in there, maybe what our goals are for doing a stream habitat project. And a lot of the history of what's been done on the stream as well as any fish population data we have. And so we need to update those. So if we go out and, again, I said, you know, we go to some of these streams only every 10 to 15 years. And so if we hadn't been to a stream 10 years, you know, we can look, okay, what, what was the population back in 2013 and what is it now today? And that's where we can decide if we want to change how we're managing that stream. So we could, well, let's reduce stocking because the trout seem to be doing fine on their own or seem to be doing fine. Maybe if we reduce it, they can maintain that, you know, same abundance. Or maybe there's places where we, we think we should do some other management activities. And I keep saying stocking just because it's the easiest one, but it's usually not our just go-to. There's no trout there. We don't just go throw a bunch in. But one of the biggest things I've been doing this winter is we have a new strain of brook trout and it's at our Peterson hatchery which is in Peterson Minnesota and this strain has been built with what we call heritage genetics um, so back in 2008 and 2009 our fisheries research group wanted to learn do we have heritage brook trout 
in our streams. So brook trout are the only native species in our area. Brown trout in Germany, rainbows, west coast. And so, but the problem is they've also stocked brook trout from eastern strains. And so they basically wanted to learn, do we have the, the remnant heritage genetics that have been here for centuries in our trout streams. And what they found is we do. So spare you the details of genetics, trees, and whatever. But basically there was brook trout in our streams that are not related to any of the known stocked strains. And so what we've um, what we've done is then created a strain in the hatchery using right now um, two of the streams that have those populations in it. And hopefully this next year or later this year, we'll add a third stream into the mix. But we've created a, a new strain that has been built from taking eggs and milt from brook trout in the wild and then transporting that material into the hatchery and raising brook trout. What's exciting is that they will be available for stocking this summer. So one of my main tasks in the last few years has been deciding where we want to stock these new strain of brook trout and now updating all those management plans so that we can stock them this summer. And a few of our thoughts, so we have areas where we've stocked in the past, so we're going to continue stocking in some of those areas to see if maybe this new strain would outcompete the old strain that has been stocked. And then we have picked a handful of streams that we're going to do, you know, a reintroduction stocking where there's no brook trout currently. And so we'll do that for three years on all those streams. We're going to stock stock them for three consecutive years and then um, go back in probably five or six years from now and see how they're doing. You can envision a, a small feeder brook trout stream that back in the day had poor land use in the watershed. Maybe the water quality wasn't the greatest and brook trout were once extirpated from that small tributary. And, you know, now with uh, we have a lot of our streams and springs are flowing highest that I've seen since I've been here 2007 so we have really good spring flow our trout populations are doing phenomenal just average number over 12 inches are record high for a lot of our streams that we sample every year and so the idea is that we'll be then going back in and reintroducing those brook trout where they wouldn't be able to you know migrate on their own if there's miles and miles of rivers and warm water breaches that they'd have to get to to get up to that tributary so we'll see I'm hopeful it'll be successful. But. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have not heard about that. Um, I definitely yeah. want to kind of learn more about that once you guys come out with it. That'd be interesting. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. To, we're going to kind of, like I said, stock for three years and then just let them do their thing and then go back in and see and hopefully learn why something was successful or why it wasn't successful. Sure. And, and where can the public kind of learn more about your guys' work? The, um, like the management plans, are those public? or? Um, we do not have them anywhere that you would access them but if you just give our office a call or shoot us an email we're more than willing to share any of them you know they are documents that are available to the public we just don't have them all posted anywhere okay so easiest way to find us i would just search lanesboro that's l-a-n-e-s-b-o-r-o minnesota dnr fisheries and it should be the first link that pops up on our website we have a 
resources tab, we kind of have some guidance where to fish. So we, ha- we don't have all of our streams listed, but we have quite a few of them listed and, and some information about each of those. Um, we have some information on some of the different programs that we continue to do, as well as I would say one of the most valuable resources is we have trout stream maps online, as well as we do have a printed booklet, Trout Angling Opportunities Guide. Okay. And there's there's a north northern version one, and ours is for the southern and central Minnesota. Those are available if you're in anywhere DNR office. Um, they probably have them. Otherwise, if you contact our info center, they will mail you one. But those same maps are available online. And um, another popular link we have is our stream conditions page. And so we try to keep keeping up to date um, water clarity and flow for some of our more popular streams to fish. And so if you were up in the cities and you know we got rain down here but weren't really sure if things are going to be cloudy or not, we try to keep those updated. Otherwise, again, you can always just give us a call. Um, Our doors are always open as well. We like when people come to us with questions or want more information because that's what we're here for. And that's another big part of our job, too, is just the outreach and education that we can provide for our anglers. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about your work. And then one last final question I have for you is like, what's one of your favorite parts of your job? I would have to say working outside in and around water. Um, and I love being in a boat, but I think it's pretty cool, the the hiking around. I, I also really enjoy just kind of going for hikes through the woods. So, you know, we're doing more walking and hiking along these streams and, and through them. Obviously, we're doing electrofishing. So being outside and, and in this beautiful area, I would say, is definitely the best. There's days that we're, we're out shocking, you know, and we'll get, some really nice fish and we'll somebody will just say out loud and like and we're getting paid for this <laughs> right yeah <laughs> kind of puts things in perspective that we do have some some pretty cool jobs so yeah i would urge anybody that's interested in in the dnr or you know fisheries line of work again a lot of us are open open door to chat about if you're a young aspiring college student that isn't really sure what they want to go into it just come and talk to us you know we've had other people stop in or they'll go down to the hatchery or the COs will bring in you know our conservation officers get people that want to do ride-alongs and trying to figure out their career path I don't think you can start exploring that stuff too soon right no exactly I agree with that so. awesome well yeah thank you so much it's been awesome to learn more about your work and more yeah, about the glad you, reached out. glad you reached out and I'm glad to glad to have been on and shared shared with you my experiences and what we do down here to learn more about Minnesota's DNR work check out their website and the other links below again if you could leave us a review on Spotify or Apple you would greatly appreciate it since it helps other people find our podcast This season is hosted and edited by me, Lenaya Turner. The music is made by the Wright Brothers. If you have any questions, feel free to send them to fiverivers at tu.org. We hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks for listening.